Hello, and welcome to episode two of Prescription. I'm Dina Cairo, and today we'll explore the legacy of Katie Beckett. When you ask the average person, what is Medicaid? I suspect a significant percentage, if not the majority, will say that it is healthcare coverage for the poor. And that is true. Finding coverage for the poor is the reason why Medicaid was started in 1965 by President Lyndon Johnson, along with Medicare, which as everyone knows is care for seniors. Yet, disabled Americans make up a significant share of Medicaid beneficiaries, with estimates in the range of 10 to 15 percent. Children make up 40 percent of total Medicaid beneficiaries. What most people don't know is that many people on Medicaid would not qualify for Medicaid based on income. They are children with complex medical conditions who are brought into Medicaid for services despite having parents with income and assets over the guidelines. These children require care that is complex, costly, and often involves care that is not paid for by traditional health insurance plans. Mary Catherine Beckett, known to her family and friends as Katie, was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on March 9, 1978. Katie arrived prematurely and weighed just over two pounds. But she was thriving at home with her family until she contracted viral encephalitis, a viral infection of the brain and spinal cord, when she was around five months of age. Initially, she suffered grand mal seizures and slipped into a coma. When she emerged several weeks later, she was largely paralyzed from the devastating effects of the virus on her spinal cord. She slowly recovered over the next few years, but was left with nerve injury to her diaphragm, and she required a tracheostomy and a ventilator at night to help her breathe. At the age of three, Katie had stabilized, but she was still in the hospital. Her family had been trained on her care, and her doctors thought she was stable enough to go home with home nursing care to help her manage her ventilator and tracheostomy. In fact, her doctors thought she would do much better living at home with her family. Unfortunately, the million-dollar cap on her parents' private health insurance policy was exhausted, and she was then covered by Iowa's Medicaid program. As an aside, lifetime caps for, quote, essential services, unquote, in health care plans were made unlawful in 2010 by the Affordable Care Act, which will be the subject of a future episode. At the time, however, existing Medicaid rules required Katie to stay in the hospital to receive care. And there were two reasons for this in Katie's case. First, Medicaid rules traditionally required long-term care services, uh, think of care provided by a nurse or a nurse's aide or a therapist, to be provided in an institutional setting, like a nursing home or a rehab hospital. And this had just started to change in 1981, when Katie Beckett was three years old and still living at St. Luke's, with proposed legislation moving through Congress for amendments to allow home and community-based service Medicaid waivers for adults, known as HCBS waivers. This would waive the traditional requirement for institutional care for a person who could live in a less restrictive setting with some support. Because Katie was a toddler, however, these waivers would not help her. Under what is known as the deeming rules for Medicaid, the income and assets of the parents were deemed to be the income of the child for determining Medicaid eligibility. If Katie were to go home, she would need a second waiver, one that would look at her extraordinary medical expenses and not her parents' income. The cost of keeping her in the hospital was over $6,000 a month. 
The cost of sending her home with nursing care was estimated to be around $1,000 a month. Much less expensive than keeping her in the hospital, but far more than her family could afford to pay out of pocket. Katie's mother pleaded the family's case to Tom Took, a congressman in Iowa. He tried to appeal directly to Health and Human Services, the agency then responsible for regulatory oversight of Medicaid regulations, but he failed. He continued to press, though, and eventually he got the ear of Vice President George H.W. Bush, who was then also serving as the head of the U.S. Regulatory Reform Commission. Vice President Bush decided to discuss the issue with President Ronald Reagan the same day he spoke with Took. The next day, President Reagan announced that Katie would be granted a waiver to go home at a press conference. Reagan did not call the press conference specifically to discuss Katie's situation. Rather, the waiver came up organically in response to a question posed by Andrea Mitchell about the president's recent cuts to entitlement programs. Here is the audio of their exchange. President, while you have made no decisions yet on your entitlement cuts for 1983 and 84, what is your feeling in principle about the cuts that have been proposed to reduce Medicaid and Medicare benefits and to also force welfare mothers to go out and seek jobs? Does that mean that the social safety net is really in tatter? No, it isn't. And the main goal in any of these reductions is still aimed at correcting those abuses that have come about through the interpretation of regulations to allow people who do not have real need that justifies their imposing on their fellow citizens for sustenance uh, for them to still be able to take advantage of these of these programs the person with real need we still want to help at the same time when you say to force someone to go out and 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 seek work i think that the whole target some of our social reforms like welfare always should have been to find a way to salvage those people and make them self-sustaining instead of perpetuating them under the third and fourth generation as wards of the government. And let me just give an example here of the type of thing that goes on that has to be corrected. We just recently received word of a little girl who has spent most of her life in a hospital. The Doctors are of the opinion that if she could be sent home and receive her care at home, it would be better for her. This spending most of her life there and away from the home atmosphere is detrimental to her. Now, it would cost $1,000 a month for her particular ailment to send her home. Her parents have no way that they can afford that. And the regulations are such that Medicaid now cannot pay for that if she goes home. The alternative is Medicaid continues to pay $6,000 a month to keep her in a hospital when the doctors say she would receive better treatment and be better off at home, but her parents can't afford to have her taken off Medicaid. Now, by what sense do we have a regulation in government that says we'll pay $6,000 a month to keep someone in a hospital that we believe would be better off at home but the family cannot afford one-sixth of that amount to keep them at home. Katie Beckett went home with her family on November 12, 1981, two days after that press conference. The Reagans sent Katie a rag doll for Christmas with a note that wished her and her family, quote, the loveliest holiday ever, end quote. 
HHS incorrectly surmised that situations like Katie's would be limited, so they formed a board to review all new waiver requests. After Katie's story made the news, hundreds of families contacted HHS to seek a waiver for their child, and the agency was flooded. They quickly concluded they were too overwhelmed to handle all of the requests, and they turned the reins over to the states to initiate a Katie Beckett waiver program if they chose to do so. In the ensuing years, 19 states initiated a Katie Beckett waiver, and a number of others initiated home and community-based service waivers for children with rare and complex medical conditions. Looking back, it all seems like an easy decision for Reagan. Presented with a compelling family story, a chance to reduce regulatory burdens, and a chance to save taxpayer money, the waiver was a win-win for everybody. Reagan once told Katie it was one of the happiest things about his time in the White House. This decision revolutionized the world of allowing the disabled to live in the community. But this revolution, as you might imagine, has not always been smooth, as families have struggled to access care and families with children who have needs that only can be met in an institutional setting, temporarily or permanently, have struggled to obtain placement. As for Katie Beckett, after she went home from the hospital in 1981, she lived a full life. Doctors told her parents she would likely not survive until adulthood, but she proved them wrong. She graduated from high school and then got a degree from a college in creative writing. She and her mother, Julie Beckett, continued their advocacy for children with disabilities to live in the community. Katie once said, advocacy is in my blood and in my soul. Katie held several jobs over the years and lived in her own apartment. She was writing her first novel and had applied to graduate school when she became very ill with pneumonia. She died at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids, the same hospital where she was born and hospitalized as a child. She died at the age of 34 on May 18, 2012. I first heard Katie Beckett's name in 2001. 20 years after Katie's parents took her home. My son Ryan was born with a rare genetic disorder and he spent most of the first four months of his life in the hospital. He required dozens of surgeries in the first few years of his life and a tracheostomy like Katie and a gastrostomy tube to help provide the nutrition he needed to grow. Medical staff were recommending that he go to a rehabilitation hospital and then potentially to live with us at home. And I was vehemently opposed to that idea and I was insisting that he come home with us. Fortunately, many of his doctors supported us. One morning on rounds, one of his surgeons said he could, quote, go home on a waiver, end quote. How is that going to work? I asked his head and neck surgeon, who proposed the idea. There's no way insurance would pay for that. And then he said, fortunately, the days when you have to sell everything you own and get a divorce to get your son on Medicaid, those days are over and you can get him on a Katie Beckett waiver. I was lost. Who was Katie Beckett, and how would all this work? Ryan's case manager did make it happen, though, and in record time. This is an even more spectacular feat when you consider that an infant with a tracheostomy requires an alert caregiver 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Small children do have a way of pulling on everything attached to them, including the life-saving tubes and lines. 
If my son had been born 20 years earlier, his life would have looked radically different. Julie Beckett continued the cause after her daughter's death. She co-founded Family Voices, an organization that advocates for medically fragile children. In 2017, legislation in Congress proposed to severely limit Medicaid funding to the states, and Julie Beckett and others lobbied Congress to protect it. She said, quote, The waiver I fought for to allow my daughter the best chance at a full life is not the waiver states would be allowed to seek under the legislation currently debated in Congress. We cannot anticipate the things that will happen to us, which is why it is so important to preserve the Medicaid program. It needs to continue to be there when people need it the most. All people who have health coverage from traditional Medicaid, as well as those who access it through waivers, will be hurt by the changes being debated in the Senate right now. I urge our elected officials to help protect my daughter's legacy by promoting policies that protect children with complex health care needs and by preserving Medicaid. So many of these children don't have a voice, so I'll use mine to speak for them. End quote. Thanks to Julie's advocacy and the advocacy of others, Medicaid was spared from the congressional chopping block. More video, photos, and articles about Katie Beckett's story can be found on Prescription's podcast page on Facebook. Please join me next week as we continue to look at the waiver model and the disparate execution among the 50 states that has led to a patchwork of available benefits. Thank you for listening.